3: Welcome to the Catherine Dock Show. I'm Catherine Dock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Dock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Travis Hugh Culley, author of A Comedy and a Tragedy, a memoir of learning how to read and write. Uh, In this powerful memoir, former bicycle messenger and acclaimed author of The Immortal Class, I guess that was his first book, recounts his difficult journey to literacy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Travis thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you. Okay, so this is your memoir. I love memoirs because you always learn something from somebody's. I always learn something from somebody else's story. So the book describing your difficult journey to literacy. Um, why, you know, what was the motivation for writing this, and why was it such a difficult journey, and what did it do for you when you were finally able to learn to read and write?
1: Well, those are three questions. I'll see if I can handle it. Yeah, them <laughs> those are three um, questions.
3: <laughs> yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> um,
1: I, I, I wrote this book because I did have a very difficult journey to literacy, but I also wrote this book because I, um, through my education, came to understand something very powerful and potent about literacy, um, how it transforms a, a human being from the inside to the threshold of who they are, And beyond to how they interact with society. Um, So I I feel like I have something to uh, to share, uh, a responsibility to um, to convey what I learned about literacy through the um, aperture of 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 the period of my illiteracy when I was young. Um, I think on the third, I think this is the answer to the third question. um, Culturally, there's a lot of confusion about what the meaning of literacy is. Um, we kind of avoid the subject um, and, and, and try to um, um, not handle specifically the difference between literacy itself and illiteracy itself. Um, we uh, culturally think we have a lot of ideas about what the meaning of illiteracy is and that when you're literate and things are clear, everything's just okay. But I think that's where a lot of confusion um, culturally exists in our society because literacy is not... Clearly um, described in even first grade, second grade, third grade, um, people graduate from high school without a clear understanding of the difference between reading and writing or an understanding of um, what is the intellect when it is in a speaking, listening mode? what is the difference between uh, my intelligence pure and simple, and what my intelligence how my intelligence conveys itself in writing. Yeah. Um, literacy is, is, a, is a specific subject about. Um, how we can communicate through documents. And, um, and so there's some information that I think that uh, my illiterate experience um, can help open up for us um, for socially
3: and culturally. Yeah, I don't know the statistics. I don't know the statistics on literacy, but I know it's a huge problem or or lack of literacy. Um, and so your story is important. But let's go back because I think obviously it has a lot to do with the impact of your dysfunctional family family dynamics. It's not just uh, you know learning how to. To be or be literate as a result of the school system or teachers, but there's just a lot of emotional stuff involved in being able to 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 learn to I said, to to be literate. So let's take your story back to you know what happened to you in the beginning. I mean, because the book is described as a comedy and a tragedy. Um, so are we going to start with the comedy or the tragedy or <laughs> or both? Oh, both, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, um, ha,
1: how, to, how to begin, I guess, um, I, I, again, um, in culture, we sort of think that um, uh, if a person cannot read or write, it's upon them. It's just a, a, a bias of our culture, I think I'm pointing to sort of directly, um, that as Americans, we believe in the spirit of the individual, the, the this I will concept, um, and that if someone is not you know, getting the program, let's say, or not understanding a lesson. That's because of something that they're dealing with. And if someone is getting a lesson, if someone's accelerating going forward, then that then means that that person individually has this value, and is able to develop some mastery or develop some skill individually. But what I think my book opens up is the cultural question, in which, from a family standpoint, um, there, if if one is not being given correct instruction, then. Um, the, the, the child who grows up illiterate um, feels a double burden they feel the, the guilt and responsibility for not getting the, the lesson but they can't look back to um, their own cultural surroundings their own their, their own familial surroundings for support so um, it, it, that's very confusing for a, a, a child who's illiterate in an illiterate culture or in an illiterate family. How does one you know um, turn that around is, is um uh, it is partly why I wrote this book. Um, but what I want to point out in, 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 in telling my story this way is that, well, um, and maybe I should point to it through a, 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 an analogy. If at school um, children are not being given proper nutrition, is it their fault if they're not receiving the proper lesson? Or, you know, is there a responsibility owned by the institution to be able to make sure that children are receiving the nutrition they need to be able to use the lesson? Right, um, so that we could look at the educational system at, from a, um, not just the, the singular individual place in which something, in which the education succeeds or fails. Um, what I'm saying is that my illiteracy was not based totally upon myself. It was in, in part culturally informed. Um, my family did not find um, that literacy was um, was uh, an active pursuit for themselves personally. Um, we lived in um, Miami, Florida, um, which was a cross-section of different cultures. And so um, the question of how one reads and writes came up against what language one uses in school. Um, so, in, in, a, in a sense, there was a few things missing from my education early on, and that's, I think, the uh, most important way for me to um, to begin telling the story. Um, yeah. There in, in the classrooms in which I was raised, um, for example, um, we were given English books by English teachers. But I was sitting next to children who were, had been born and raised in Cuba, in Nicaragua, Dominican Republic, South Africa. Um, Miami is such a cross-section of cultures that um, there's bound to be something in a public school system that um, has to be overlooked. If we're going to teach this whole class English, um, The question is is asked even by the arrangement, wait a second, who's English and who's not, right? Um, Culturally, English is the language we we operate with, but there's a major level of of dissonance even, even here. I, as an American, didn't view myself as an English person. So when my English teacher gave me an English book, I was given the question, wait a second, is this my language? Um, the, the children next to me, they spoke Spanish. But wait a second, is that their language? What I hope I'm opening up in, in looking at these uh, pressures this way is some of the effects of colonization and in history. Um, because what rules our language is not just uh, grammar, but nationalism and politics. And what rules our educational system is, is not just teachers, good or bad, but also ideology and belief. Um, In the nexus of all this, I I retained a lot of questions as opposed to did a lot of learning in the early years um, from one to about eight. Um, At the age of um, eight, when I transitioned to fourth grade, in the summer between third and fourth grade, then um, I received a, 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 a... a very traumatic experience. I experienced something that was very complicated, and um, that, I suppose, supported my resistance to illiteracy, or my, my resistance to literacy. This traumatic experience um, caused me to step deeper inside myself and um, an experience a betrayal between myself and adults. Uh,
3: Travis, you just mentioned that the, we're talking about this very tra- this. This uh, critical experience in your life, what was it? What you know that impacted on your literacy?
1: I was sexually violated by um, pastor of um, a church camp that I was sent to um, uh, the summer between uh, third and fourth grade. This was the church camp that my father had gone to when he was my age, and um, in, in the narrative of uh, my family life. Um, when my grandmother received her master's degree in social work, ironically enough, um, I was sent to this camp, and um, and it was a not. I was not part of the congregation. I had never met any of the people in the church. It was a very unfamiliar territory for myself and my brother. And um, I woke up on the kind of last morning of that um, week in camp inside of a the boys' cabin, all of the cabins by a a convention, they'd allowed it such that children could write their names on the interior of the cabin. And I woke up uh, after this horrible experience um, in the cabin alone, unsure of how I'd gotten there and what had happened to me. Um, When I looked out into the world, I looked out into this interior of this cabin, and I saw all of these children's names written this way and that way, oh, covering a span of 50-something years. And um, and I, I had been given an, a kind of an, an instruction that came along with that um, childhood sexual assault that I experienced, in which um, I was told I'd forget everything in the morning. Um, I, I was given some sort of a drug, a um, uh, chloroform or an ether, and I was still experiencing a lot of um, psychotropic effects, I suppose is what I'd say. Um, in, in, that, in, that, in that morning, and I, and, I, and I had a very scrambled memory of the occurrences the night prior. Um, but when I woke up in this room in which there was writing all over the walls and ceilings and bedposts and beams, um, I was in a, in, a, in a state of shock, I suppose, in, in, a, in a very open state of shock in which it, there wasn't any closure for it for a while. Um, and I had a kind of a nightmarish, connection between the night prior and the morning there, um, which, which, which frightened me about the nature of language. Um, I, I had maybe an, a, a psychic experience or, or, or maybe a, a sympathetic experience with all of these other children who had written their names on the interior, um, because in a sense now I, I could, and I could not understand them. In that moment, I, I, could, I could read the names but I also had the instruction that I would forget, quote- unquote, "everything" in the morning. And so I was in a, 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 a peculiar space. Uh, you could, I could say I felt like I was in a kind of outer body um, in, in an out-of-body experience, um, because the names which I understood, deep down inside, there was still a barrier saying, "I don't understand what I'm seeing. I don't understand what I'm feeling, and I don't understand how these words relate to me. Um, what I had to understand many years later um, is is that I also had written my name on the interior of this cabin, and I, like other children, experienced horrific childhood sexual abuse. And And, um,
3: You know, here you are away at a camp, a Christian camp, you're describing that your father had also gone to, and then you go home and you've had this horrendous, I mean, this abusive experience. Was this something that you just... That you told your parents about, or you didn't, or you kept it a secret, and and then of course, it, I would imagine it impacts on all of your life. Your, your not just your ability to read, but uh, you know your behavior, everything. I would imagine there was the real consequences to this in school and in your family, and your as you described dysfunctional family. So what happened? Did you did you just put it away and 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 sort of deny it, or was this something that? you were able to share with someone when you went home.
1: Well, um, this is why the story of um, sexual abuse, ha- I, I think, has a uh, direct relationship to the question of my education. Um, I, at the time of the, that point in my childhood, I had no idea that a child could be treated the way that I had been. I, I at the age of eight, didn't understand what homosexuality was. I didn't understand that um, um, men could have this relationship together. Um, I, I certainly could, didn't understand that um, um, a pastor from a church, a clergy person, who's uh, who I'm supposed to trust from a divine level, um, could actually um, break that um, that bond of trust. And and so I, I had an experience that I could not relate to anything that I had learned in my eight years. It was an experience that stood outside of my understanding of how things events occur as an eight-year-old boy. Um, and this is what I hope will open up this conversation about education differently, is that when I went to school in the fourth grade, fifth grade and onward, I walked into, classroom, into the classroom with a lot of information that I did not know how to unpack. And it took me many, many years in order to be able to understand um, these distant memories um, as they related to real cultural and social pressures. Um, when I moved into the arts and I, I began to explore the theater, I, I then learned something about different relationships. Um, not every person follows the heterosexual model, for example. Not every person um, is, is, is born privileged and lucky. Not every person um, is, um, grows up in the culture in which their, their language is native or innate uh, to them. Um, and so there are certain um, things I learned afterward which informs me of what had happened prior. That's partly why it was uh, possible for me to keep this memory secret. Um, there were a few moments in the sequentia itself of what happened um, at camp in which um, I do have memories, distinct memories. And um, they were kind of floating memories, kind of uh, prosthetic memories for a long time until until I, could, um, until I had the intellectual ability to, to give them context and to ground those experiences as, as meaningful. Um, while they were not meaningful, I only had a, 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 a glimpse of, of what had happened. in 19, this, this is the summer of 1982 um, in which things took place, and when I went back to that camp in 1985, um, my grandfather drove us home from that week of camp, and he had a conversation with me, and he said um, that we should be careful. You know, any time that you know, kids are around adults in an unsupervised way, things can happen. He, he, he let me in on that, and it was the first time that I had, you know, a, a, even a, a glimmer of, huh, there, there is maybe something strange about this camp or this, this place that I was at. And, I, and, and so he said, be sure to tell me. If um, if anything uncomfortable happened or happens to you there, um, and he was informing me a little bit too late, um, I had already been affected, and so when I when I when I responded to him, I said I'd, I'd fallen off of a swing, and this was three years after the events had taken place. Um, what, what what specifically had happened is on the last night of camp there was a um, a carnival night that was a kind of a festival which um, celebrated the, the week of camp, and there was kind of a, a specific mass service which took place prior to that. Um, at the carnival, um, I was given um, a, a glass of some unknown substance, and I think it was alcohol, it was, a, it, was, it was wine, and ginger ale. And they were combined together such that I would think it was, it was pop, but I was informed that I should not share it with anyone else. I was given this, this glass of wine.
3: You know, um, I'm going and, like, you know, it sounds like, and I'm going to stop you there because we don't have a lot of time left, and I do want to yeah. mention the book also again. Uh, I'm talking to Travis Hugh Cully and his book, is a Comedy and a Tragedy, a memoir of learning how to read and write, and I think we've kind of gone, we're going through uh the, the tragedy part of it, um, I, I'm not sure what, the, you know, the comedic aspect is of your memoir, but I kind of would like to fast forward just a little bit uh, because, you know, obviously this traumatic is a Traumatic event, but to adulthood, what can we learn from the book? I mean, you know, you, I mean, we don't. I don't want you to necessarily go through the whole book. We want people to go out and buy the book. Sure. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, can we kind of give a, 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 you know, uh, give us a summary, a little bit of like, okay, here you. you let know, me let only... me let me first say this: is that is that what, what I want to get toward and, and really speak
1: to is 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 the the meaning of a document? And it was in this uncertain moment of my childhood that. I had a memory of falling off of a swing, and that became certainty for me. I became a document of that. I could walk around and say, "Yes, I did fall off of a swing." And um, where the comedy starts to unravel is that um, some children are like me, um, given improper instruction, given the wrong information. And some can call it the the right of first learning. If you learn something the wrong way right up front, then everything that that follows after. Is going to have that same level of confusion built into it. And this is where the comedy begins is, um, after this difficult experience of my childhood, um, I, I, I was a fool. I think the, the, the right term is I was unaware of the circumstances. Um, I took on the role of being a fool. I, when, when someone said, Were you literate or illiterate? I rose my hand. I was illiterate. I was, I, 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 my brother was someone who was a, uh, an avid reader. I was someone who was not like my brother. And so I had the social kind of, a, I suppose, support for me to kind of move in the direction of being, I'm the one who doesn't know. I'm the, I'm the one for whom things don't matter, um, because there were big open questions in my experience. Um, later in my, growing up, in my, in my education, this is also part of the comedy, as I bond to the theater and to the arts and to the humanities, I start to realize how it is that experience is owned by a person, how it rests in a person, even before they're intellectually equipped for it. And this is what I, I, I really hope to, um, to tell, is that um, it is the child who has to learn the meaning of, the, of, of keeping a record. Um, what we've done wrong, I think, in culture Broadly, is we've, we've described literacy as being um, a, an ability to read and respond to a specific instruction, and that, that's what we think literacy is. If a child can um, read what I've asked them to do and respond correctly, well, then therefore they are literate. And I think that that misses a major part of the of the pie. A big part of the, a big wedge of the pie is missing about the meaning of literacy right there. Because what literacy really depends upon is how a child expresses their own experience and describes their own experience, how they use a document. And so I think that culturally we need to make a big change in terms of what we call literacy and illiteracy. And we need to build a model of literacy on the self-expression of students. Um, It was only through my path in in becoming an artist that I began to lay claim to self-expression. And through self-expression, I developed literacy. Mm -hmm.
3: So, in other words, you have to go through this. You had to go through this healing process, uh, obviously. And the book is about this journey, obviously. But and if you don't do that, or if you and and I I guess then it's we're not just talking about teaching somebody how to read, obviously. All these other um, events in your life. Um, impacted on how you felt about yourself and how you—I you, guess you thought of yourself as like—I'm going back to there the was a description your brother dubbed you the bird brain, um, and so you took on that role of the bird brain. It seems like throughout this whole kind of journey um, until you were able to, as you say, when you got into the arts, and then you were able to to, to evolve into you know being able to to have a home a more positive. Um, feeling about yourself. Um.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I suppose there's um, um, a step in this in which the fool expresses themselves, improvises what they feel, and performs what it is that they're experiencing. And if we uh, take a look at what the meaning of a document is and say, okay, this child has been re- given this um, complicated lesson, and now later in life they're going to express themselves however they know how to, in an improvised setting, then that experience is going to come through, and the fool is going to communicate something that's possibly very profound and very yeah. enlightening. Yeah. Um, no. Because they come into the situation with that information. They don't know they have it. They don't know its relevance. But when we look there, yeah. through, through a, an, an artistic education, um, then that child teaches the whole room something new.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we, our time is up for this morning, but uh, I, I just and I'll mention the book again so that people can obviously read the book and continue with your journey—a comedy and a tragedy, a memoir of learning how to read and write. Travis Hugh Cully, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. You're welcome. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio.
0: Tune in to Lou Augusta's A Rumor of Empathy. Our show is committed to providing a generous listening, empathy, through conversations with our guests and you. Every issue deserves to be heard and thought out empathically. When it is properly sorted out, it becomes a solution rather than a problem. In Lou's program, his goal is to help you through conversations, which in turn can help your relationships and other aspects of your life. A Rumor of Empathy can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment.
4: Where can you find a forum to help you make the best decisions in your everyday life? Listen for An Hour of Empowerment with Charles Haywood Ellis III. Each week, the program will cover a wide variety of topics you've asked about, from self-improvement to finances, and matters as varied as education and urban violence. An Hour of Empowerment can be heard live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Be sure to stop by every week. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. If you're looking for tips for personal success, look no further than DJ and DaBear, keeping you at the top of your game with your hosts, leadership and personal effectiveness consultant Dietta Jones and Richard Dent, formerly of the champion Chicago Bears. Together, as a husband and wife team, they've raised a family, owned two successful businesses, led major philanthropic initiatives through their foundation, and lived the ultimate lifestyle. Find out their secrets. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Are you happy in your life, or are you just settling? It's time to speak out, take control of your existence, and let your life speak. Bart Queen is the host of A Hero's Journey. His personal goal is to help you find your voice, use that voice, and live the life that you deserve to live. Do more, be more, and give more. Tune in to A Hero's Journey on the Voice America Empowerment Channel, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You owe it to yourself to tune in and make your voice count.
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
3: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zoch Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Peter Sulak, author of Unhealthy Anonymous, Exposing the Greatest Threat to Your Health and Happiness. Stress is a part of everyone's life. It's at the root of many of the diseases and disorders that plague our nation. Dr. Pete Sulak provides hope for this universal threat and offers up common-sense, practical solutions to reversing stress's effects. Dr. Pete uh, treats patients traveling from around the world seeking his services, his, his studies on the effects of stress coupled with testimonials from patients. And attention in medical communities have garnered him the title of America's leading stress expert. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor Pete.
5: Hey, Captain. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you.
3: Well, Doctor Pete, as I understand it from your book, the true cause of sickness and disease uh, in our country and probably around the world is not stress necessarily, but rather the body's inability to adapt to and recover from stress. So that, this is that what is absolutely
5: you. Absolutely correct. Okay.
3: So all right, so that all right. So in other words, stress is here. We know that we're never going to get rid of st- stress. We never have. I don't think since the beginning of time or that uh, or man. I guess I should say modern man. But uh, so what do we do? How do we? Your book, which is what it's all about, is how we adapt to the stress. What do we do? We're not doing it right. So we got all kinds of horrible diseases, high blood pressure, weight gain, sexual dysfunction, all of it. But you have the cure for this.
5: You know, it really is, and it is, the first step is to identify the true culprit. And uh, in our society, we believe that if you feel good, you're healthy, not broke, don't fix it, yet people feel good and have heart attacks, feel good and have cancer. Yet the big pandemic that's facing America is that we all have stress at an alarming rate. I heard recently a study that said we have more stress in one month today than a generation ago did in their entire lifetime, and stress is the culprit. And everything we deal with from cancer to heart disease is really a stress response. And so it's, first of all, identifying the true culprit, which is stress, and then it's caging that tiger and increasing the resiliency to deal with this threat, which is stress.
3: Let me take you back because you said we have more stress than we ever had. What are some of those – we have to identify the stressors. So what did you say? How – in this generation we have more stress – yeah. Really
5: more stress than uh, in one month and a generation ago did in their entire lifetime with the new technology, with the busyness of our schedules, with literally we're burning the candle at both ends. And uh, you talk about stresses like toxins, chemical stress, trauma, which is physical stress. And then you talk about things like auto-suggestion, which is mental stress and, and, and the voices that some people have and just the busyness of this life, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, just trying to live this life, there's so many stressors from raising your families to relationships to the toxins in our environment. It literally bombards us from every side.
3: So, Dr. Pete, you're not saying it's just different kinds of stress, but we have, I want to really be clear about this, it's more stress, like environmental, physical, medical, all of these kinds of things.
5: Um... Absolutely. We have more stress than ever before, even in the foods that we eat you know, the processed foods, you know, it's a big debate now with genetically modified foods or not. Just the toxins in our environment is more, the pollution is more than ever before in history.
3: Well, as you're describing it, it seems almost impossible for us to adapt to stress. What do we do? How can we, you know, tackle each one of these areas? I mean, environmental, of course, is Difficult. That's more of a, a cultural kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, you, I mean, those the food we eat, like you mentioned, uh, the air we breathe, the water we drink, uh, that's all toxic, yeah. or in, in many cases, uh, it's, yeah. it's very toxic. And other, and so how do we deal with? Let's start with that. How do we adapt to that kind of a stress?
5: You know, it's, it's understanding too that stress is inevitable, as you, as you said. And we've had stress our whole life, so it's not even about eliminating stress because you can eliminate stress. Can you min- minimize it? Absolutely, you can. You can minimize it through your relationships, by making healthy choices, by the foods that you eat. But like I tell people, that a little stress is actually good for you. It actually motivates. I want my staff to have a little bit of stress because it keeps them productive. A little more stress, though, it complicates things, and a lot of stress, that's when it begins to deteriorate. And so when it comes to increasing our body's resiliency to deal with the stress that affects us every day, that's why we wrote the book Unhealthy Anonymous. After seeing a million patients over the last 13 years, it's what are the 12 key steps to increase the resilience of the body to deal with stress. I talk about the power of choice, that when we make choices in alignment with the vision for our life, then it propels that vision. But when we make choices outside the vision for our life, then it kind of leads us off course. And so those are some of the 12 steps that we begin to lead people through to increase the resilience of the body to deal with stress.
3: All right, let's talk toxicity. about choice, because I think that's really important, Dr. Pete, when you're talking yes. about choice. Give us an example of that, like what, uh, what, how, what motivates us to make good choices and what motivates us, as you said, that we make poor choices. And then that doesn't increase our resiliency to stress. It decreases
5: it. Well, Well, for instance, let's say we want to lose weight. Well, if I want to lose weight, then some of the choices I make will either propel that choice to lose weight or they'll lead me off course. So if I want to lose weight, then one of the things that we understand is that sugar is one of the culprits that will literally prevent that from happening. So if I have diets and I'm not watching what I eat, then it's gonna lead me off course. But if I make choices that minimize sugar intake and make some healthy alternatives, then it literally propels me for that. If I wanna be healthy, I have to really work out. And so if I'm making choices to prevent myself from living a sedentary life, then I'm propelling myself into that vision to lose weight for my life. And it's really having the proper perspective as well, because a lot of people think that if I lose weight, then I'll get healthy. But the reality is if I make some healthy choices, then I'll actually normalize a, a good, healthy weight. And I won't become like an Oprah who's, you know, bigger one moment and loses weight one It's kind of this roller coaster. And so literally if I begin to make healthy choices in my everyday life, I will actually begin to maintain a healthy weight, a healthy metabolism, and lead me on the road to a happy and healthy life.
3: Well, you have what you call a 12-step program, but I guess as a social worker, what I want to know is what prevents us from doing that? If we eat too much sugar, we gain too much weight, we don't feel well, uh, we don't have a lot of energy, and yet for some reason there are lots of us who are Oprah's who keep doing it, eating the wrong foods, eating too much sugar, putting on weight. Why do we do that?
5: You know, one of the things is, too, you know, the, sometimes it's just comfort foods, and we, we live in a stressful life. I know for my wife and I, sometimes you get home from a hard day, and you just want to sit down and watch TV. And then when you you get bored, you begin to eat. And we have to have a proper vision. So I talk about us having a proper vision for our life as well. It's like, okay, what do I want to do in my life? You know, I, there's a proverb that says, whatever man sows, he shall reap. Well, it's knowing that, hey, the, the decisions I make today will affect my Years in in the years to come, and so it's okay. Well, first of all, what's the culprit? Because I don't think that weight gain is really the culprit. I believe the the culprit is the body lost its ability to adapt and recover from stress. So, what are some simple things that I can do to really help in that? One, drink more water. It's in fact proven that if I drink half my body's weight in ounces of water a day, it will help my body detoxify itself and it'll actually help me lose weight. So, if I weigh two hundred pounds to drink 100 ounces of water a day will literally be something that will hydrate my body and allow my body to properly detoxify itself. Things like sleeping. Do you know that if you, every hour before 10 o'clock, and that really, some people say every hour before midnight, is equivalent to three hours after midnight. and allows the body to begin to recover and facilitate that stress response so the body can adapt to and recover from stress. And when it comes to weight, if we increase the body's resiliency to deal with stress, we'll actually normalize a new weight because it's proven. I have people come to me all the time, Catherine, that they well, Dr. Pete, you know, I eat clean, I exercise all the time, but I can't lose that weight. Why? Because their body's stuck in a stress response. And under stress, the adrenal glands release cortisol, which is the stress hormone that goes and grabs the glycogen stores from the liver and the muscle which is simply glucose or sugar being stored for later use as energy, it turns that glycogen back into blood sugar, and because there 's so much because of stress, it stores in my fat cells so just increasing the body 's resiliency to deal with stress will allow you to maintain a normal, healthy weight, which is pretty profound, but it's a, it works time and time again well,
3: what are the excuses what are the uh, tell me the, like the five I guess the five biggest excuses you get from your, your patients
5: or your clients, well, big,
3: like why they the, can't do this. because yeah, the, uh,
5: time is yeah. one of them. You know, people just say, I don't have the time, Dr. Peden. So that's why, you know, I set up Unhealthy Anonymous because, really because of my wife. My wife says, you know, let's be practical. You know, a lot of our friends are the leading health experts in the world, and they said, you know, that they're intimidating. You know, so what is a mom of four boys, you know, with a busy life? How do we get healthy? And so that's why we set up Unhealthy Anonymous. So we said, hey, I don't care if you have Skittles in your mouth or Twizzlers in your pocket. Let's just get you moving in the right direction. So when it comes to time, do you know that you could actually do one of the most effective workouts in four minutes just by increasing your heart rate? I'm doing some what's called Kabata training, 20 minutes of exercise. Take 10 seconds of rest and do that just for four minutes and it will increase your heart rate and it will actually help you burn fat for the next 24 hours. But sometimes people are just intimidated. They say, you know what, Dr. Pete, I don't like to go to the gym. I don't want people to see me. You know, I, I'm not like those people. Um, but we just say, hey, there's grace. When you begin, get on this journey, we want to give you the tools necessary so that when you go off course that we can show you how to get back on course. And so there's no condemnation. There's no judgment. Let's just get you moving in the right direction because I have a lot of people that come to me from around the world and they're very intimidated. It's like, what do I need to do? I tell people, I don't even care if you're at death's door. Let's just get you moving in the right direction, step by step. And even if you get off course, we'll help you get on course again. And that's why we set up Unhealthy Anonymous and our website to be like a discipleship course to lead people on the road to a happy and healthy life.
3: Well, do you design a program? I mean, I mean, there, obviously there's an overall program that you subscribe to, but you're getting people from around the world, very different lifestyles. Uh, you know, have more st- different people have dressers in different areas uh, that are different. Uh, so do you set this up, kind of like design a program in, in for each individual? I mean, you have people who are single, as you said, What you have four children, four sons, uh, you know, families who are at home, like, because there are, and some people can exercise more, they eat different kinds of food, so how does that work?
5: Well, that's a good question, too, because people come to me with stage four cancer. I had someone come to me from Michigan with severe MS, hasn't walked in five, in five years, a lady from Barbados with stage four breast cancer, triple negative, which means there's literally nothing chemo radiation can do anymore. Well, I look at all those things. I look at cancer as not the abnormality. Cancer is actually a stress response. Even uh, Dr. Eli Jones with a, a famous medical doctor in 1909 wrote a book called Cancer. And in his book, he said the number one culprit is stress. Well, even with MS, MS, I don't view as the, as the problem. The problem is the body lost its ability to adapt and recover from stress. So with everyone that comes into my office, we have a protocol to increase the body's resiliency to deal with stress. It comes down to restoring spinal mobility, getting them moving. Exercise is proven to increase what's called proprioceptors that stop the stress response. So just getting out and being active is one of the greatest things that you can do. By hydrating yourself is one of the greatest things that you can do. So no matter where they are in this journey, we'll actually incorporate these principles of unhealthy anonymous to get them moving in the right direction. And then I don't treat thyroid issues. I don't treat um, cancer. I don't treat MS. But all these people see tremendous results by dealing with this, really this main pandemic called stress and increasing the body's resiliency to deal with stress.
3: So what did you do for those? Because you gave those as you say you don't treat cancer or MS, mm-hmm. but in this case these people came to you—one with cancer, one with MS. So what happened yeah. specifically in those cases? Did I, I'm sure, I would assume you didn't cure the cancer, but did the patient go into remission or what happened?
5: So for instance, you know, with the patient that came to us from Michigan with MS, he's 42. He's had MS for 15 years. The last five years he hasn't been able to walk. When he came to me, it was because. Someone had heard about what we do in our office and actually flew him to see me. And we, when he lied on my table, you could tell his body was dying. He was having difficulty breathing, dizziness, choking with meals. And so I actually saw him in my office. I checked him. He lied on my table, okay, and I actually freed up his spine 60 different times in a matter of two weeks, okay? I began to put him on a detox program to begin to detoxify the body because under stress, the body becomes toxic and deficient. So I removed the toxicity, began to help with the sufficiency of body's need by basically showing them what to eat and what not to eat. Okay? We removed sugar from his diet. We began to minimize gluten from his diet. So removed some of those toxins. And then we began to just uh, restore the spinal mobility. After two weeks, he went back to Michigan and sent me an email. He said, Dr. Pete, for the first time in five years, I can write my signature. I can use a fork. For him, that was a big deal. I no longer have difficulty breathing, no longer have dizziness or choking with my meals. And for the first time in five years, I'm starting to take small steps. Now, no way is he out of the woods, but he's getting on the road. We've got him at death's door. And if we can just right the ship and begin to move him in the right direction, it's so much better than not righting that ship. Now he actually has hope. And every two months, we see him, and we're seeing great, great progress. Not because I'm treating MS. I don't treat MS. We're simply increasing the body's resiliency to deal with this great threat, which is stress. We help detoxify the body and add the sufficiency that it needs.
3: So, in other words, the symptoms get less. You're not curing MS or you're not curing cancer, so what – But. You help the patient to become resilient so they become yeah. healthier, so whatever disease they may already have, they are able to see improvement, feel improvement. The symptoms, the symptoms dissipate. Is that what you're saying?
5: Yes, yeah, and so it's like I tell people all the time that if we went to a zoo and a tiger got out, we'd run for our lives, male or female, young or old, we would take off. But when we, when we run away from a tiger, our body goes into a stress response. It's proven that our pupils will dilate to see the environment we run to. Our heart rate will go up and our blood pressure will go up. And at the same time those things go up, our digestive system shuts off and our immune system shuts off. Why? It's a protective mechanism because I'm running away from a tiger. Well, none of us would consider that high blood pressure to be abnormal. In fact, the fact that our digestive system shuts off, we wouldn't consider that abnormal if I'm running away from a tiger. That's normal, necessary, and good. Okay. The problem is you're running away from a tiger. So you have to cage that tiger with well, the same thing in our society because of this pandemic of stress. Now, none of us have actually physically run away from a tiger. I wouldn't believe unless you're in maybe Asia. Okay. But in, in, in our culture, our bodies are in a stress response. So it goes through similar things. Well, under a stress response, it's going to affect your digestive system. Well, the digestive system is not the abnormality. The abnormality is the body lost its ability to recover from stress. So my objective is to literally cage that tiger and increase the resiliency to deal with that stress. And as a result, all the things we once thought were abnormal begin to normalize because we actually go after the root cause and allow the body to deal with stress on a regular basis.
3: Right. So we're simply not treating the symptoms. We're treating the root causes. So this works when patients come in like with high blood pressure. We talked about weight gain, um, heart disease, uh, all, all of those. And you mentioned also brain fog. What does that mean? Because that, that's a symptom that I think Absolutely. I suffer from that. <laughs> but You know, I, I just
5: uh, did a talk on mental health and, yeah. and we talked about things like ADD, ADHD, depression, um, schizophrenia, bipolar. Okay. Well, mental health issues are actually a brain toxicity issue. And what happens is under stress, it begins to affect your gut lining. Okay? And so it begins to affect our gut. And so when we eat, we get what's called leaky gut. In fact, it's proven that probably 90% of people have a leaky gut just because of the toxins and the stress in our environment. That means when you eat, proteins get in the bloodstream. Okay? And then actually it will begin to affect the blood-brain barrier and affect mental health. And so it's proven that if we begin to Help the Gut, which is our first module at Un- with Unhealthy Anonymous at our website, we will actually begin to improve brain fog, things like that. It's actually one of the reasons that we started Unhealthy Anonymous because my wife was having symptoms of MS. She was having dizziness. She was having brain fog. Okay? and we had been She's under my care, but we've been going to all these specialists, and actually we began to heal her gut. So we began to add the sufficiency that the body needed, and all those things began to dissipate, and take care of themselves. And so things like brain fog is a stress response. It's really a toxicity in the body. Well, it's proven that under stress, the body becomes toxic and deficient. So we begin to help detoxify the body and have the sufficiency that the body needs. And literally, that improves brain fog. Well, it's actually proven that under stress, the hippocampus of your brain, which is the learning center, shrinks. And it's proven that you become dumber. Okay, well, learning disabilities. Our society would consider abnormal. I would say it's not abnormal, it's normal, necessary, and good in response to something that's abnormal. The body's in a stress response, so let's increase the resilience of the body, cage that tiger, and those things take care of themselves. A quick example I had a patient that came in six years ago, he was a fourth grader, he was in special needs classes at school, getting uh, they considered him borderline mentally retarded, and he was. Uh, just he was on lithium and a whole array of other medications. So he came to us last, uh, basically last resort. Well, we began to just really cage that tiger, increase the resilience to the body through the principles I talked about Unhealthy Healthy Anonymous. La- As a 10th grader two years ago, I asked his mom, he said, how has your son done? She said, Dr. Pete, she said, within a month of coming to you, six years ago, he was off his lithium. Within a few more months, he was off all his m- medications. As a 10th grader, he is now in uh, honors classes at the high school, not borderline mentally retarded, not special needs in honors classes getting A's and B's, okay? And he just got his Eagle Scout last year, not because they treat learning disabilities. We cage tigers and increased the body's resiliency, and it literally transformed this young boy's life.
3: So what do we do Dr. Pete when we just go to our regular physicians which obviously most of us do at least initially and we're we're uh we, we're suffering from not, if not all but some of these symptoms but the immediate response usually to ma- from mainstream physicians uh mainstream medical people is uh, medication like you described with this this young man um lithium whatever it is but so what do you what, what do you say? I mean, because that's the context of the kind of the medical community that we're in. So do we have to wind up with stage four cancer or you know severe mm-hmm. symptoms of MS before we go to someone like you or go to Unhealthy Anonymous? I mean, how do we? Because this is what happens in our everyday life. Oh, you were you know you have high blood pressure, take medication. You you know weight gain, take a pill to you know uh, decrease your appetite. So yeah. how do we how do we as just as uh, everyday uh, lay people, how do we respond to this? What do we do?
5: You know, the biggest thing is I just believe we need to educate ourselves. And, and that's why I tell my patients, you know, my job is to empower you to make decisions and I'm not here to um, tell you what decisions to make. I'm here to empower you with information so that you can make educated decisions. And the first thing we have to identify the true culprit. I believe the culprit that's literally the pandemic facing the world today is stress. So whether you go to the medical approach or not, even if you're on antibiotics, let's, let's increase the body's resiliency to deal with stress. And so that's what we want to provide people. We want to provide people a new set of glasses to look at health from a new perspective. We want to provide them a new set of keys. The keys to a happy and healthy life. And then a new set of shoes and help lead them on the road to uh, really on this journey, step by step, to a happy and healthy life where they can truly get healthy. So even if you're stuck in the medical paradigm, that's okay. Unhealthy Anonymous will allow us to take simple steps, step-by-step, and allow you to lead you in the right direction and begin to restore your health.
3: Okay. So what you're saying is education, education, education,
5: Education, and awareness. We have to be
3: aware. And then mm-hmm. that will lead us into making these good choices and also to reading your book, Unhealthy Anonymous, Exposing the Greatest Threat to Your Health and Happiness. And you keep mentioning, and I want to mention again, unhealthyanonymous.com. That's where we can get all the information about the 12-step program.
5: You absolutely can. And if it's hard to uh, spell Unhealthy Anonymous, uha12.com. That's uha12.com, and they can get on the road to health today.
3: Yeah, and you also I have included in this, I guess, there's some additional, you describe it as additional ways to support lasting health habits, which is what we've been talking about today, Shop with a Doc videos, uh, recipes, uh, those are also available to us.
5: Absolutely. We have a 21-day reboot on the website that literally walks you step-by-step step to get moving on this, on this journey. We have meal plans, recipes, how to study guides. Um, we really provide you everything that you need to get on this journey and be effective and successful at it.
3: So it's very specific. We don't have once we uh, if we go through the first step of being aware that we are making unhealthy choices, that we don't feel well, uh, then the next step is to go to well read the book and go to Unhealthy Anonymous and and uh, acquaint ourselves with the 12-step program. And you kind of really take us by the hand. I can see.
5: We do. We take you step by step, and every month we give you a brand new module. So the first month they show you how to heal your gut, which is the foundation. I give you videos, recipes, meal plans. The second month, I show you how to balance your hormones. Actually, a hormonal imbalance is a gut issue, which is a stress issue. So every month we lead the third month. I show you how to maintain a healthy weight, which is actually a hormonal issue, which is a gut issue. So I lead you step-by-step step along the way, 24-7, 365 days of the year.
3: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing all the information. Dr. Pete Sulak, um, we're going to have to say goodbye uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
2: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Katherine Zox.